Considering a transition to private pay, Thryzer can help you transform out-of-network therapy to look and feel like an in-network experience for your clients. Your clients just pay co-insurance for sessions instead of waiting weeks for reimbursement. Thryzer covers the rest of your fees so you get paid in full upfront. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Is your mental health practice buried in the bottom of Google search results? There's a way out. Simplified SEO Consulting offers a roadmap to search engine success. As mental health professionals, they know how to help therapists attract ideal clients and build a thriving practice. Go to simplifiedseoconsulting.com forward slash modern therapist to learn more and unlock your SEO potential this summer. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Verdoy, and today's episode, this is a follow-up to our resumes episodes that we released earlier. Today, we're talking about job interviews, and Katie, some of the best job interview advice I ever got is, remember that every question that is being asked of you is a test. So when they say, how are you, your response should be goal-oriented. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, yes. Thanks, Kurt, for that lovely, lovely joke. I was actually thinking that uh, job interviews are in in Kurt Wilhelm parlance, can I stand you and can you stand me? The two most important <laughs> questions of my interview process. Because you're a, you're a, you're a tough hang. I think you have some people uh, that work for you who are are saint like, uh, and so very, you've very got to find the right so. people. Yeah, and I think I think the biggest piece about interviewing is that it is truly an opportunity to make sure that you are asking the questions of the potential employer to see if you can put up with them, if what they do is something that you want to be a part of. So so that's one thing to remember. But I think we should start, go back to the very beginning of this process. Certainly, if you've not listened to our getting a job episode about resumes and how to find a job, please go listen to that. You don't have to turn this one off and go to that one. But you want to make sure you're prepared with a good resume and cover letter. And then I want to talk through the process, if that's okay with you, Kurt, just kind of what what can happen. So when you find a place to apply to, you want to make sure that your resume is tailored to that position, especially if you really want it. And you have your cover letter, even if nobody's going to read it. And if they have an application, fill it out. The thing I hate the most is when people say, see resume. And I want to say, hey, expletive. (laughs) I asked the question because I want an answer. (laughs) But from the other side, it's like here I've created this resume with all of this information and I'm applying online and now I have to type in all of this stuff again. A good application is not I'm typing in all the same stuff again. And you're talking about kind of applications that agencies have that make you type in your resume. Okay, I see that. But still take the time. Okay, so that's that's preparation for community mental health paperwork that you just have to do stuff over and over again. Yes. Yes. So it's it's showing that you're conscientious, that you're following instructions to fill out the application. And I think for the types of things when I do recruiting or I help people design their recruiting process, I tell them to have questions in their in an, a special application that 
talks through some of the deal breakers, like describe working your work with kids or do do you work evenings and weekends? Are you open to that? So make sure you answer all the questions that are in an application completely. And even if that means, especially in an agency one, that it's N.A., (laughs) (laughs) don't just leave it blank. People will think you forgot. And so anyway, so let's because this is on interviews, I just wanted to add that piece. So when when a hiring manager gets your packet, you know, the resume, the cover letter, the application, maybe transcripts, maybe some other pieces that depending on what they're asking for, they're going to look through and identify the top. I don't know, maybe 10 people that they're going to call in for call for phone screening. Are they generally are they generally going to look for kind of the more positive people here, not applicants, but applicants? <laughs> yes, they're going to be looking for applicants. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's going to be people who line up with their idea of what the position is. So, you know, we've talked about this already, but just a reminder, make sure that you are tailoring your resume to the job posting so that you can really show them how you match with the position. So a phone screening can be anything from somebody just giving a quick call and asking a couple of questions informally to what I've done, which is a 30-minute structured phone screening interview with, I ask the same questions of all the applicants, and I really start even talking through, and we'll talk about questions later, but I start talking through some of the deal breakers. I talk through some clinical questions to see who I want to actually spend time with in an in-person interview. What do you do, Kurt? Do you have a phone screening process at all? I've kind of evolved over the years. Back when I had a lot more time during my process, I would largely just bring in everybody. (laughs) Which is not efficient, Kurt. (laughs) It's not efficient, but it really allowed me to get a wide variety of people in. And now that I'm screening people out a little bit more, I at least do a phone screening, some version of this is what I'm looking for. Like it's does that line up with you? It doesn't line up with you. And when you say yes, it does line up with you. Are you actually serious about that? Because I know that there's a lot of people who are very excited during the interview process who will just agree to things and then back Mm -hmm. out of them later. Yeah. And I think that's problematic. I think that's, you know, over and over, I tell people, if you're interviewing for a position, present the most professional version of yourself. But don't lie and don't say you're going to do stuff that you're not going to do. If you set yourself up for a bad fit, not only will you hate the job, but you may get fired. You may be really unsuccessful in that. And so you want to make sure that you're really presenting yourself, the best version of yourself, but presenting yourself from the beginning, from the phone screening through all the different process. So with the phone screening, first and foremost, Depending on how automated they have it on their end, if you're receiving a request to have a phone interview, treat it like a regular interview and also be be as flexible and re- responsive as you can in scheduling because it can be pretty timely. If you schedule three weeks out, they may have already hired somebody by the time they get to your phone screening. You want to make sure that you're as responsive and prompt as possible, that you're flexible when you need to. And then if you get through the phone screening then make sure that you're also flexible and responsive in scheduling an in-person interview. I always recommend to folks using like a, you know, kind of automated scheduler so that you can kind of go in and pick the time. And so it's not this back and forth and back and forth, but I have to be honest, not everybody does it. So it may be a pain in the butt to, to get scheduled, but stay positive and stay flexible and responsive 
because I've had people who fell out, not because of anything they said in an interview, but because they treated the hiring manager's assistant poorly. They were with schedule and then cancel repeatedly, the interview time, that kind of stuff. So it's important to make sure that you recognize every interaction with a potential employer is part of the, the application process. It's part of the screening process. Anything that you're doing is going to be looked at. And this includes things like making sure that you're in a quiet place on that phone call, that you're not going to be distracted, that there's not a bunch of random noises happening in the background, <laughs> that you want to show your professionalism pretty much all the time. Yes. And I, that I cannot, I cannot emphasize that enough. I actually recently did some phone screenings and I had somebody who was doing the phone screening while they were on the train. And it was so crazy. Like I would hear that in the background, we're coming up to blah, blah, blah station. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm like, I couldn't hear her. I was like, I can't believe this. This is ridiculous. So even if it just seems like a quick phone call, any, any contact with a potential employer, even a recruiter, you want to make sure that you're showing your best self and that you're presenting with a quiet environment with yourself prepared, know what, know what job it is that you're interviewing for, you know, make sure that you've checked in because you've probably not just applied for one job and make sure that you've, you've done the homework before any, any interview, whether it's phone or in person. So after the phone screening, what's usually the next step in the process? Is there other types of screenings that people do or do they just kind of jump into, okay, now we'd like to bring you in? It depends. I think if it's a really sought after position, they may have a quick phone screen followed by a video conference call. But typically, you know, let's say you, you, you have one position, you get 40 applications, you narrow that down to 10 phone screenings, and then you bring in three or four people for a final, you know, kind of an in-person or more tries the final interview process. Getting a phone interview does not mean that you're going to get an in-person interview. So you really want to show up and do the right thing. But usually after that point, you're going to go into an in-person interview of some sort. That can look like one-on-one with the hiring manager, especially if it's a clinical supervisor in private practice, you're usually just going to meet with them. It could be in an agency. It could be meeting with a panel of different hiring managers because they have openings across the agency. Uh, One of the ones that I don't really like this kind, I think, Kurt, I think you said you like this kind, but group interviews where it could be one or two hiring managers with a whole bunch of candidates. And the reason I don't like them is because it really favors the extroverts and the people who are willing to speak up first because then everybody's like, yes, and to, to add to that, or I agree, like it's hard to have <laughs> good answers when you're interviewing in front of other applicants. And so I don't think people show the, themselves in the best light. But sometimes people do that to, to expedite the process. That does happen for therapists. If you've been considering switching to private pay and are unsure how to attract and retain clients, Thryzer can be your best resource. How? Thryzer actually helps you transform out-of-network therapy to look and feel like an in-network experience for clients with out-of-network benefits. First, Thryzer can help clients instantly verify their out-of-network benefits, providing them complete transparency on the cost of therapy ahead of their first session. Then, just by charging your clients via Thryzer's payment platform, you can automatically submit claims for them, offload all the insurance stress onto Thryzer, and even let your clients just pay their co-insurance for sessions, similar to in-network co-pays, to help them afford therapy upfront and skip the long reimbursement wait. 
Thrizer covers the rest of your fees, so you get paid in full up front and waits for reimbursement on your client's behalf. They also have a super bill uploads feature, which is completely free for therapists. If you'd like to instead offer your clients a resource to manage their own super bills, they manage all claims end to end. So you or your clients don't need to deal with any of the insurance stress. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to start your free trial and receive waived fees for your first $2,500 in payments. Part of it for me is expediting the process now that I am a little bit busier than some of the times that I've hired before, but especially in kind of a private practice type setting and the way that I structure my business is I'm teaching pre-licensees how to set up their own business. So I'm looking for people who are going to be naturally better at things like marketing, and that's Mm -hmm. going to come out in a group interview that I'm not going to really be able to recreate that much further down the line without a lot of other investments of my time and resources into making that kind of thing happen. So if I can screen people out from the beginning, I'll go for it. Yeah. And and what I recommend to a lot of people who are wanting to hire is I try to to screen people out before they get into in-person interviews so that there's a lot of a lot of questions in the application or in the phone screening that clears out all the deal breakers. If you're an applicant, I think it's really making sure that you're honest all the way through and you really think about your answers because like Kurt, as an employer is talking about, they don't want their time wasted. And so if you've been lying all the way through saying you're going to work on the evenings because you're working with kids and then you say, no, I really can't. I'd like to work in the afternoons or no, I said I could take 20 clients, but in fact, I only can take 10. You know, those types of things are hugely problematic and you'll get you'll still not get the job or you'll get the job and lose it. And uh, everybody's time has been wasted. So, so regardless, however it's set up, you're, you're, you end up having at least one, if not two or three opportunities to answer questions in these interview settings. And one other type of, of group interview that I've seen that I actually kind of like, this one I actually like, is for, for candidates that have gone through an individual interview or a smaller interview, potentially with a uh, you know, a couple of hiring managers or, or a couple of other ca- candidates. So a smaller one where there's a really a digging in. The group interview is is kind of bringing the person into the group supervision to see how they fit with the rest of the team and having the team giving feedback on the person. So that could be a possibility as well as far as the process. Sometimes the process is pretty quick, especially if somebody's looking to hire quickly. But typically, my experience is that the, the process can take a very long time because there's you know a lot of candidates to look at, because there's a lot of things to think about. There's a lot of scheduling that needs to happen. So there's also a certain amount of stamina that I want applicants to really hold on to that they you know keep coming back, keep keep doing all the things. That's important. Definitely. And that's even part of the design of my process is that Part of building a practice is it takes a while sometimes for some of your investments into marketing in order to actually turn into clients. Mm -hmm. And so one of my screening things that I'm looking at is kind of how well you deal with frustration. Uh, Not that I'm any more annoying than I typically try to be (laughs) in my day-to-day life, but my process is fairly slow. And it's because I want to invest enough time during the hiring process to get the right kind of person who is going to be able to stick around that I would rather make mistakes in interviewing people or losing out on maybe a potentially really great candidate 
in the beginning if it means that I'm not having to do that again in six months or a year. For sure. I, I want those really strong people to be able to demonstrate kind of all of those deal breakers, whether they say it, but it's actually more by doing it. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing that I really emphasize with the people I'm helping to structure the recruiting process is there's a lot of behavioral assessments that happen. Can the person, it's a person on time, is the person responsive? Do they have positive writing skills? How do they treat the, you know, administrative staff? I think recognizing as an applicant that you are being assessed for what you're doing behaviorally and not just what you're saying is also critical to know. Because if someone doesn't work out (laughs) in the long run, it's really frustrating for the employer. It's really heartbreaking for the, the employee. And so especially because we're talking about being hired by a therapist and a therapist has training in how to assess people. Uh, you want to make sure that you're just paying attention and being very thoughtful about how you approach things. So during the interview process, there's usually a couple of different types of interview question styles that I go through. One kind of looks more at your traditional type interview questions. This is going to be talking about what your what your background is as far as your work history goes, mm-hmm. what your plans are, kind of looking at more of the what's in the house about you. So I think those are good questions to comment on. I think the questions of, you know, who are you? What's your story in some ways? You know, talking through your work history. I think those are good questions. I think those are typically the the least effective as far as sorting through if you're going to be the right match. Um, at least the the actual, like if it was transcribed, it would be absolutely useless typically because so much of that's already in there. But it's the the rapport building that happens during those types of questions. It's the the willingness to connect and then also appropriate boundaries because uh, oftentimes, especially folks who've had maybe a challenging practicum site or they're moving from one agency or supervisor to another, that can also be a time where the the pieces of complaining about previous employers or previous supervisors can come up. So, so just recognizing that you're showing how respectful and professional you're going to be in answering those questions. Because so often, I think people get really burned out or really overwhelmed and think that everybody's going to see it from their perspective. And as a, as a potential employer or somebody that's interviewed people, I have had trouble sorting through, is this because they truly had a bad experience or because they weren't manageable or, or supervisable? And so you can't assume that, you know, complaining about a previous employer or supervisor is ever going to come across in a sympathetic way. I don't know if this is something that you do in community mental health settings, but I then kind of move into how do you work as a clinician? What kinds of theories do you work from? Do you have any special skills? So if somebody answers like I'm trained in EMDR or I'm trained in trauma resiliency model or I can eat gluten um, (laughs) or some sort of other version of a extra training that they have that would be beneficial in working with clients, that's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. What I don't want to hear is I am eclectic in how I work (laughs) and I just kind of wing it. Yes. I I don't expect you to have a fully formed idea of how you're going to practice, but at least to be able to talk specifically about what it would be like to be in a room with you as a client. So if you are gravitating towards CBT, answer – I find a lot of my work is directed by CBT. I like to 
help people find what their schemas are and to help challenge them to look at things differently and work on their behaviors. And if you don't have this experience so far in your work history, if this is your first practicum interview, then talk about what theories seem to be good for you. And I would say the asterisk that I'm going to put on this is that if you are going to work at an agency that has a reputation for working from a theoretical model, go in prepared to talk about that theoretical model. Yeah, that was one caveat that I was going to put in as well. In community mental health, I, do, I I always ask the, what is your theoretical orientation? How do you conceptualize cases? That kind of stuff. There is definitely a conversation about uh, clinical experience, clinical orientation, you know, kind of what, how thoughtfully do you approach your cases? But I think the other thing, and I don't know if you do this for your interviews, Kurt, but there would also be some sort of a vignette that I would put forward to help mm-hmm. really kind of in the moment see how the candidate would, you know, look at the case, what types of things they would point out. I'd try to have enough kind of juicy information so that there would be, you know, things that they could ask questions about. And I've talked to a lot of, you know, pre-licensed or, you know, student clinicians. And I think that's the thing that can really freak people out because all of a sudden you're called upon to kind of perform clinically in the room and potentially you're already nervous and your heart rate's going up kind of fast. But what I've really suggested for folks frequently is that if they get a clinical question, whether it's a diagnosis or a vignette where they're supposed to talk things through or some sort of risk related vignette, you know, what kind of things are you looking at in the risk related pieces, you know, child abuse, suicidality, you know, those kinds of things. What's most important to me, and I think that this is something that I encourage most interviewers to look at, is thought process. You know, especially newer clinicians, it can feel tempting to have an answer. Well, that's ADHD, or I would do this specific intervention and have an answer that sounds forceful. I think what's better is what I'm seeing here is this. These are the types of questions I would want to ask. This is the additional information I want, mm. might want. This is how I might approach. If I got this type of answer, I might do this kind of thing. Or I'd be really curious about X, Y, and Z to get more information to be able to make a diagnosis. I think showing thought process is so much stronger than having a pat answer. And for those of us that think out loud, like me, that's easy. <laughs> If, if you're more of an introvert, you're more of a thinking before you speak kind of person, I think you take a breath and you you make sure that you have some basics that you're, you've lined up, which talk about, okay, summarize what you heard. I heard this, this, and this. As a therapist, you should be able to summarize what you've heard. And so as you're summarizing, and then you can take a breath and you can even say, you know, let me take one moment to think about this because I've got some thoughts processes that I want to kind of formulate here, or let me check in. Is that what I heard? And those kind of things, but then really talk through how you would make the assessment, how you would formulate the case, how you would address the risk, how you would diagnose, because giving an answer versus giving a thought process is way less effective. And this is one of those things where if I'm going to point out, like, that is the exact thing that most people are going to gloss over, go back and listen to what Katie just (laughs) said again. Like, this is something that I really stand behind and want to draw a lot of attention to this because even for as much as I just kind of talk out loud and kind of think out loud through Mm -hmm. things is that most therapists are going to need more information that and especially novice therapists, we don't expect you to have an answer. We expect 
if anything, that you don't have an answer, that you have more questions to ask in order to formulate a good idea. So this might even be that if you find yourself in one of these role play situations, you can ask for a piece of paper like you would be in session to jot down some notes and to be able to draw things out in order to help facilitate that process. And it's something that I would appreciate as a potential supervisor to see you do that and to put that kind of effort into thinking and making sure that you're responding appropriately rather than trying to be forceful. Yes, absolutely. And I think the other piece is that if you don't really know, I think that I've seen people say I would check with my DSM or I would go to my supervisor. Certainly you want to refer to tools you might use, but saying, well, I'd have to check the DSM is a cop-out. Having the, you know, going to the DSM is a cop-out. I think I'd ask my supervisor is kind of a cop-out. I think it could, you want to say like, especially with risk assessment, you would want to say, I would seek out consultation with my supervisor, make sure that I was following the protocols for the agency or those kinds of things. You, you want to mention that you're not going to just be off on your own lone ranger doing whatever you want, but have ideas about how you would treat something or how you would address risk. And to add to that, that if you are going to go consult or if you are going to go check the DSM, that the next thing out of your mouth is the questions that you would consult with or what you would be looking in the DSM for in order to help differentiate the information that you're doing there. It's not to say don't do those things, but it's if you're going to answer in that way, do it correctly. Yes, yes, for sure. And I think in addition to kind of perspective questions, what would you do in these types of situations like a vignette or a role play or asking your theoretical orientation? One of the things that I think is frequently asked, um, well, one of the things that's asked that I hate is what are your top three strengths and your top three weaknesses? I want to strangle anybody who asks that question because they're, they're basically just an assessment of how manipulative you can be. So one of your strengths is physical strengths, apparently. <laughs> No, that's more of a, a, a theoretical uh, strangling. But what's similar, the similar questions that get at some of the same stuff, but I think in a stronger way, are talk about a, an especially challenging case and how you handled it. Talk about a mistake you made and, and, and how you addressed it. It can also be talk about, you know, kind of a previous interaction with like a conflict you had with a supervisor. So there may be more challenging questions to actually bring up things in your past that you had to to navigate through. And sometimes it can be talk about your favorite case or most successful case, and that can be lovely. But I always joke that the be- the strongest case and the most challenging case, if it could be the same case, it's like the strongest thing ever because you talk about the huge challenge and then the over you know the overcoming it and then the success story at the end. Like if you have that, great. But you're probably going to be asked about either a case that you've treated, a mistake you've made in the past, or a conflict that you've navigated through with a team or a supervisor. And I I think it's really important to be prepared for those so that you can talk through them, showing good boundaries, taking responsibility for your pieces. And I think the other thing, kind of the caveat to the good boundaries is also recognizing confidentiality. Because I've had some people come in to an interview and talk about a former case and they were like saying names and identifying information. And I was like, whoa, like I am not protected (laughs) by the confidentiality of of your practicum side. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're thinking about those things as well. 
Feeling like your ideal clients just can't find you online? There's a better way with Simplified SEO Consulting. They're a team of mental health marketing specialists who understand the unique challenges therapists face in the digital world. Forget wasting time on confusing SEO tactics that leave you feeling frustrated and out of the loop. Simplified SEO Consulting offers a range of proven solutions to fit your practice needs, from DIY courses that empower you to take control, to done-with-you coaching that provides expert guidance at every step, to their individualized done-for-you SEO plans that let you focus on your clients while they handle the details. Plus, they have an innovative content network program that has set practices across the country apart from the rest. When you're ready to start showing up in front of your ideal clients online, the expert team at Simplified SEO Consulting is ready for you. Visit SimplifiedSEOConsulting.com forward slash modern therapist to schedule your free consultation and find the perfect SEO plan to unlock the full potential of your practice. Don't forget to mention Modern Therapist Survival Guide podcast for $100 off your done-for-you SEO onboarding, or use code Modern Therapist for 20% off a DIY SEO course this summer. One thing to add in here, too, and this is something where you might end up being asked, how did you change because of a case, or how did you recognize some counter-transference issues that came up? And to be prepared that that could potentially be a question of knowing what some of your reactions are that you had to review in order to grow as a therapist. I think to have that kind of a self-reflection reflects really, really strongly on people in the interview process is that I worked with this case that was very difficult and it brought up a lot of questions in myself of, am I prepared enough to work for this or work with this case? that then made me go and research more and work with my supervisor on how I was reacting very similarly to this because of some personal issues in the background that allowed for me to then be more prepared for my next sessions. I think that a question like that with an answer like that is something that can reflect very, very well on you. I could not agree more, Kurt. I think that the people who have come in and basically asked it like, they could they had never done anything wrong and the job ahead of them it was totally easy were people that i wasn't that excited about hiring i have one example of that i have uh i was it was actually a supervisor that i was interviewing and i asked about not weaknesses, but what is most difficult about the supervisor job and she responded back that nothing was difficult and I'm like, whoa, you do either don't understand the job, you're not confident enough to talk through your mistakes, or you are very unself-aware, or you lack self-awareness. And so I think being able to show self-awareness is really important, because if you don't have that, then you're not going to be easy to manage. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, in addition to clinical questions, there are going to be uh, questions about how you'll be as a worker. And so I don't ask the strengths and weaknesses question. Like I said, I would strangle somebody that did, but I have typically kind of talked through the job requirements and what a typical day would look like, and then ask what would be most challenging for you in that. And this is another spot to show self-awareness. If you say, oh, that all seems easy, then you don't get what the job is. This is not an easy job. Being a therapist in any setting is not easy. This challenges you. This is something that you have to really develop yourself and there's lots of growth edges. And so saying that nothing would be a problem 
is a lack of awareness, a lack of insight. So I think those are some of the questions. I don't know. Do you ask other questions, Kurt, that are like more what kind of an employee you'll be? In a private practice setting, I and this is part of the, the screening process as well, but I talk about in building up to enough hours of clientele to get to full-time, I know that you'll probably be looking at earning some income someplace else. What kind of scheduling can you devote to being in private practice realistically in addition to a job someplace mm-hmm. else? And this is where if somebody's working 30 plus hours at an agency job, I don't expect that they're going to be doing supervision in two different places, that they're going to be wanting to sit in traffic and drive around and go to marketing stuff. And for people who tell me, well, I'll build my practice on the evenings or the weekends, that doesn't show an awareness to me that you are, A, going to be able to take care of yourself and all the wonderful self-care things that we need to do in this profession, and B, have a realistic idea of what your commitments are going to be. I think that's I think that's good to look at. I, I don't know... If all private practice supervisors would agree with you, I think some people, some supervisors might feel very reassured that someone has like a 20 or 30 hour week job so that there's that time to develop clinical skill and build a caseload. So I think it's good. That's going to be supervisor by supervisor. What I was talking about with the employee skills is stuff like what you were saying, scheduling. It could also be how do you manage conflict questions around timeliness or productivity or marketing. I mean, it's the stuff that goes into being a therapist that's not clinical. And Mm -hmm. so most places I think are going to have that some sort of assessment of that, because especially for those who are pre-licensed working under someone else's license in a lot of places, you are an employee, not a contractor. So, you know, they really want to make sure that you're going to perform it and follow instruction. And so, so looking at those questions, it's important to think about how would you manage a conflict with a supervisor? How would you navigate through difficult scheduling kind of stuff? I think being able to have solid answers to that is also reassuring. And the best clinician in the world, if they're a horrible employee, isn't going to keep a job. And this is part of at least... The the laws that govern our license here in California is that part of the hiring process is I'm supposed to reach out to a previous supervisor. So some of these questions about their work style are going to be answered in that conversation, who should be one of your references Mm -hmm. anyway. But yeah, in checking into the work ethic style, I do end up talking a lot about the the business aspects, the work outside of the work with the client. And I'm really looking for what kinds of reactions people have as we're talking about those kinds of things that people who kind of show me like a deer in the headlights sort of look are the ones that I know are not going to be as proficient in those areas. And the ones who are coming across with the right amount of confidence of organization and planning ahead of how to deal with those things are going to look like much stronger candidates. Yes. And I think another piece to that, as far as the the candidates who show enough confidence versus uh, planning and those kinds of things, all the things that you were just saying, one of the questions that I think people typically get wrong on a 
what I call employee skills. One is what would you do if you disagreed with your supervisor or if you're the person that's going to be a supervisor, what would you do if you disagreed with me? And I think there's folks who will say, well, I'll just do what the supervisor says. Like, I'll just take that at face value. And I don't agree that that's the best answer. I think that if you can show insight into how you would explore and get on board with what the supervisor is saying, or how you would state your case, how you would have that actual conversation just versus saying, I would be compliant. (laughs) Um, I think that's, that's also a level of maturity and something that is, is important. It's, you know, and I think, you know, we're running low on time here. So, you know, I'll, I'll just summarize really quickly, but The strongest things that you can do to make sure that you do well in an interview is prepare, research the place you're going to go to so you know what uh, who you're interviewing with and and what they do. Make sure that you show your thought process in your answers. Make sure that you treat everyone, every single person involved with scheduling you or getting you in the, the door. All of those people you treat very respectfully and professionally because every interaction with uh, the practice or the agency that you're trying to get apply to is an assessment of your skills. Make sure that you show insight into yourself and claim mistakes and, and how you would fix them, as well as how you would communicate through conflict or how you would navigate through some of the more difficult things that can happen as a clinician. So there's so much more we could talk about here. But I think in truth, when you're getting ready to interview, it can always be very helpful to have a conversation with your colleagues, with people who have been hired into the organization to get a sense of, does what I'm saying make sense? You know, if I answer these types of questions, does that make sense? And a lot of grad schools will have uh, career centers or something like that that can also help with this, but be thoughtful. If you take nothing else, be thoughtful, be prepared. You can continue on with these types of conversations in our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Survival Guide group, where we continue on the discussions about some of the stuff that comes up in our episodes or other issues that clinicians face. You can also check out our website, mtsgpodcast.com. You can find our show notes for each of our episodes there, and you can leave us feedback, and we'll take that in and apply it to our future work. But while you're on our website, you can also check out our live events, including the upcoming Therapy Reimagined Conference here in October 2018 in the Los Angeles area, where we're talking about the development of clinicians for better client care. So until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Charge your full rate with confidence with Thryzer. Thryzer takes care of 100% of the insurance stress and helps your clients skip the long reimbursement wait, giving you a powerful tool to attract and retain out-of-network clients with ease. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Feeling stuck with SEO for your therapy practice? There's hope. Head to simplifiedseoconsulting.com forward slash modern therapist and unlock your website's SEO potential with Simplified SEO Consulting. Use code modern therapist for a discount and mention the Modern Therapist Survival Guide podcast for a special offer on done for you SEO this summer. Let's build your dream practice together.